This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, December 8th. I'm Doug Blair. And I'm Virginia Allen. How should America's policymakers respond to the new COVID-19 variant? New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio has reacted by issuing a vaccine mandate for employees across the city. And the Biden administration is heavily promoting booster shots. But what do experts say the right response should be? Heritage Foundation senior fellow Doug Badger joins the show today to discuss what we know about the new variant and how our elected leaders can respond without restricting freedoms. But before we get to Virginia's conversation with Doug Badger, let's hit the top news stories of the day. During a Tuesday meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin, President Joe Biden expressed America and her European allies' concerns over the situation in Ukraine. After U.S. intelligence warned of a possible Russian invasion into Ukraine early next year, the two leaders engaged in a more than two-hour video conference to discuss a global response to increased Russian aggression. A White House summary of the call read, President Biden voiced the deep concerns of the United States and our European allies about Russia's escalation of forces surrounding Ukraine and made clear the U.S. and our allies would respond with strong economic and other measures in the event of military escalation. Here to briefly explain the situation is Research Associate for Russia and Eurasia at the Heritage Foundation, Alexis Maracic. Alexis, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you give us a brief background on Russia's involvement with Ukraine over the past year? Of course. So over the past year, um, beginning actually in April of this year, Russia began um, increasing troops along the border of Ukraine. Of course, this was in addition to the war already going on in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region and Russia's occupation of the Crimean Peninsula. Um, But this uh, buildup of troops, um, it it came out in news reports that there were approximately 100,000 Russian troops along the border, and it looked that Russia um, could invade at any moment. Russia did not invade. Um, and pulled back a few thousand troops and made it appear that it was leaving the border, but in fact it kept most of its troops and equipment there. And slowly over time, the troops have been building back over a number, and now there are more than 90,000 Russian troops back along the border, and it looks like in the coming weeks or months, um, Russia could invade Ukraine. So what does this call then indicate about a possible American response to this buildup of troops? So the uh, readout by the White House was pretty vague um, in talking about the call between President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Um, of course, it, uh, it, it said that um, the economic measures could be implemented. So this would be in the form of sanctions or, quote unquote, other measures um, could be imposed. And this could be in, this is, uh, in the form of financial assistance to Ukraine um, to support their military. It could be in the form of the U.S. selling more weapons to Ukraine. Um, and it could or it could be the termination of Nord Stream 2 um, because Nord Stream 2 um, does threaten Ukraine's energy security. Um, but it's really um, unsure right now. Um, the White House is keeping this classified right now. Um, hopefully we'll see a strong response um, by President Biden if Russia does invade Ukraine. But based on President Biden's track record with Russia, it doesn't seem like he'll be as tough on Russia as he needs to be. So then what does a good response to this buildup of troops look like? Um, A good U.S. response would be us providing financial assistance to Ukraine, um, selling weapons, working with Ukraine's intelligence services to provide intelligence um, in order to support them um, against Russia. Um, Also working with European and NATO allies to support Ukraine would be great. 
these are all stronger measures that would be much better than just some strong words against Russia. Excellent. That was Alexis Morachik, a research associate for Russia and Eurasia at the Heritage Foundation. Alexis, thank you so much. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows says he no longer plans to cooperate with a probe into the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. In July, the House Select Committee launched a probe into the events of January 6th. Initially, Meadows said he would cooperate with the investigation. But earlier this week, he announced he no longer plans to work with the committee, as he told Real America's Voice. We were trying to meet, uh, reach an accommodation. You and I have talked about this before, reach an accommodation uh, with the committee to share and uh, hopefully illuminate certain non-privileged items while maintaining uh, the president's claim on executive privilege and protecting that. It's his, it's his privilege. I can't uh, waive that and uh, certainly don't want to, to waive that. I think it'd have a chilling effect on, on conversations. Meadows says the committee is not honoring former President Donald Trump's executive privilege. Meadows added that the committee also failed to alert him about a subpoena issued to a third-party carrier trying to get information. The former chief of staff said he thinks it is now up to the courts to weigh in as he continues to honor Trump's executive privilege. A controversial provision that would have required women to register for the military draft has been stripped from the final version of the National Defense Authorization Act, per the Washington Examiner. The move is striking because the provision received bipartisan support in the House and Senate, normally a sign that a provision will remain in a bill. Currently, the Selective Service System, also known as the draft, requires all male U.S. citizens and immigrant non-citizens between 18 and 25 to register with the system within 30 days of their 18th birthday. The proposed provision would have expanded that requirement to all women as well. Senator Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri, was pleased with the decision to remove the provision from the bill and said in a statement, it appears that the NDAA will no longer require women to register for the military draft. I certainly hope that is the case. If it is not, then I will keep fighting for a vote on the Senate floor to strip this wrong and misguided provision out of the final bill. But not all Republicans were on board with removing the provision. Florida Republican Congressman Michael Waltz told Politico in a statement, If it's so grave that we have to go to a draft, we need everybody. We need man, woman, gay, straight, any religion, black, white, brown. We need everybody. All hands on deck. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Doug Badger as we discuss the new Omicron variant and how policymakers should respond to it. The Biden administration has been in power for almost a year. And the radical left has been imposing its dangerous ideology on America. Not only do they want to expand government control and promote cancel culture, but they also want to rewrite our nation's history, indoctrinate American students in our public school system, attack our traditional values of honor, liberty, and justice for all, and implement a Marxist agenda that unleashes socialism throughout our country. Here at the Heritage Foundation, we need your help to finish the year strong and prepare for the battles that lie ahead in 2022. By making a tax-deductible year-end gift right now, you'll help advance your principles, free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and a strong national defense at a time when our nation needs these principles most. 
Visit heritage.org slash year-end to make your tax-deductible donation today. How should policymakers respond to the new COVID-19 variant called Omicron? Here with us to answer that question and break down what we know about the variant is Doug Badger, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Doug, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So to begin, let's just talk about what we do and what we actually don't know about Omicron, because we're hearing a lot. This is a brand new variant. What do we actually know and what's still unknown? Yeah, well, the variant was first reported by South African authorities on November 24th. So as of this recording, scientists have known about this for less than two weeks. So there's very little they know at this point and a whole lot they don't know. Science does not move at the speed of Twitter. But there are three big questions here that scientists are trying to answer. First, is it more contagious than previous variants? Second, is it more lethal than previous variants? And then finally, are existing immunities, whether naturally acquired or through vaccines, are those immunities effective against it? Okay. Now, it it is pretty common for viruses to mutate, correct? This isn't a, a major shocker, right? It is It is not a major shocker. As I'm sure the listeners know, uh, they've been naming these variants using letters of the Greek alphabet. Delta, the one that we've been familiar with over the last few months, is the fourth letter. Omicron is the 15th. So there have been an awful lot of variants in between. This one, though, has captured people's attention for several reasons. Uh, First, while we don't know how contagious it is, uh, there have been a lot of indicators that it may be very contagious, perhaps more so than the Delta variant. Hmm. Uh, If you look in South Africa, they went from 200 cases a day in mid-November to more than 10,000 a day on December 6th, and that's largely apparently the Omicron variant. Uh, There was a, a flight from South Africa to the Netherlands, 600 passengers, 61 tested positive for the Delta variant when they disembarked. Um, so there, it could very well be uh, more contagious. Um, the pre- some preliminary indications, though, that it might not cause serious illness. Uh, South African health officials say that in the hospitals where, uh, in the province where they've had the biggest outbreak, most of the patients don't require oxygen. They're not oxygen dependent, which is very, very different, they say, from previous waves of infection that they've seen. That might be a good sign. Okay. Um, and then fi- finally, the issue of whether vaccines are, um, uh, are effective against it, don't yet know, but there's some optimism that it may well be. Okay. So we're still waiting to learn on the vaccines. It seems like it's pretty in, uh, a pretty aggressive variant from early, early data. But thankfully, it seems like people are not getting too sick from it. So at least we have that good bit of news. But I, you know, I think, Doug, the question that so many people are are asking and considering is, you know, we have been in the middle of this pandemic now for nearly two years And what is the response that we should be getting from our from our leaders, from our political leaders, from our health officials 
how should they be responding to this new variant given the amount of information that we have about it? But beyond that, the amount of information we have about COVID uh, and, you know, as, as a society, have we learned enough of how to deal with the pandemic, with this virus, uh, that life can continue, quote unquote, as normal? Or are there measures that political leaders should be taking? What do you think? Well, at this point, I think it's it's most appropriate for them to stop and wait and learn a little more about this, uh, because at this point, as I mentioned, scientists don't really know yet uh, what it is we're dealing with. Uh, there's a tendency on the part of, of uh, governments to uh, pull the, the, the same tools out of the existing toolkit, you know, travel restrictions, uh, lockdowns, mandates, and so on and so forth. Uh, the New York governor proclaimed a state of emergency within hours of learning that there was a new variant. Uh, she's already talking about canceling non-emergency procedures at some state hospitals. Uh, the New York City mayor is, is wanting to impose vaccination mandates on private companies. All of this because of the Omicron strain, and we don't know yet whether the vaccines are effective against the Omicron strain. So um, they shouldn't re respond reflexively with the same old, same old tools that haven't worked all that well in the past. Uh, they should wait uh, to get more information about this, and they should communicate clearly and dispassionately with people. They need to be honest where they don't know uh, what's going on. They need, to be, they need to convey that there's some uncertainty about uh, what they're learning. Uh, and they, need, uh, they, they definitely need not uh, to overreact to it. Hmm. Well, you mentioned New York City, and as you say, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that all private businesses, private companies, uh, in the Big Apple must require their employees to get vaccinated. Doug, what are the implications of a mandate like this? Well, I'll skip for now the, the, the legal implications. Does the, the New York City mayor have that authority uh, to put that, uh, that mandate on private employers? So far, the courts have held that the federal government, federal executive branch agencies, do not have that authority. But that raises um, a, a little bit of a different question. One of the issues that arises, though, is that we're in a time where there is a labor shortage. People may be waiting longer to get the packages that they've ordered for, uh, for Christmas because there are problems in the supply chain. Uh, we're seeing inflation. We're seeing various kinds of problems. And one of the dangers of vaccine mandates is that it will make those labor shortages a little worse. And the people who are most likely caught up in, the, uh, in, the, in these kinds of issues and these kinds of dilemmas are those who are vaccine resistant. They tend to be lower paid uh, employees, lower wage employees who don't have the option to work remotely. Mm. Uh, and what we end up doing is losing healthcare workers, losing uh, you know, postal workers, losing other uh, who are absolutely critical to the supply chain and disproportionately affecting people with lower wages, and in some cases, uh, uh, members of minority groups, because minorities continue to have a lower vaccination rate than the overall population. 
And we're also seeing uh, that New York City is is requiring kids ages 5 to 11 to be vaccinated in order to enter restaurants, uh, gyms, places of, of entertainment, entertainment venues. Doug, what exactly is the purpose of mandating the vaccine for kids? Is, is there a good reason for that? You know, it's it's very, very interesting. The, 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 the FDA had its expert panel uh, last month review whether, in fact, they ought to approve vaccines for kids age 5 through 11. And what they found was, as we know, the risk of COVID for healthy kids in that age group is very, very low. Um, and it's, it's some of the advisors during their, their debate said, look, we know what's going to happen. We're going to say that it's okay to vaccinate kids 5 through 11, and then somebody's going to come along and say, oh, well, let's mandate the kids 5 through 11 be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to be very clear that they didn't think the mandate was a very good idea, and they were reluctant to approve it uh, for, the, for all kids because, uh, just because it might lead to those abuses. Unfortunately, the FDA presented them with an all-or-nothing proposition, either approve it for all kids uh, or approve it for no kids. There are children with pre-existing diseases, underlying medical conditions that put them at very high risk of serious illness and death from COVID. Those kids, probably it's a good idea to vaccinate them. But on something like this, that's a close call for most kids. It's a very, very low risk. The vaccine might make it marginally a little bit lower. Those are conversations that parents should have with their kids' doctors. Get individualized medical advice for your child. A mayor, a president, a senator, they, they can't make, they shouldn't be making these decisions for other people's kids. These are intensely personal medical decisions and they ought to be made uh, between uh, between parents and, and pediatricians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly does seem like it would be something that would be very case by case. You know, uh, at what point, Doug, as, as we look at New York City, as we look at President Biden and, and his proposed vaccine mandates, at what point do we do we just uh, let Americans live their lives and and choose what is what is best for them to live free from restrictions from mass mandates, vaccine mandates, and so forth? I mean, is is there a, a tipping point here coming? Well, honestly, I I think we're pretty much there. Uh, people are uh, very aware of of this pandemic. I would venture that more people have heard of uh, the Omicron variant than know that Kamala Harris is vice president of the United States. <laughs> I mean, that you, ca you cannot, uh, whether it's on social media, television, uh, you can't interact with anybody uh, in our society and not know about uh, the fact that this disease is out there and that it's, it's, it's contagious. In my view, some people are making some very unwise decisions not to be vaccinated. Uh, for the most part, older people are being vaccinated. CDC tells us that 99.9% of people aged 65 to 74 have gotten at least one dose, and 89% are fully vaccinated. 60% have gotten boosters. So 
the message has gotten out there to the people uh, most at risk. And I would hope that it's also being heard by people who have underlying medical conditions that make them more susceptible to serious illness. Uh, but again, there's a big difference between people uh, being uninformed about the risks and people making decisions for themselves uh, that I may think are unwise uh, and, that, and, and that some of the political uh, leaders may think is unwise, but ultimately it is their decision. Mm-hmm. Well, and we've seen from the Biden administration right now, obviously, his his big response, the president's main response to the Omicron variant is promotion of the vaccine, is promotion of booster shots. But we also know with the vaccine mandate, there have been so many lawsuits filed against it, including by the Heritage Foundation. You've mentioned the mandate. Where exactly do things stand right now with President Biden's COVID-19 vaccine mandate? Well, they're not faring terribly well in the courts. Now, he's got a whole series of mandates. I'm just going to focus on two of them. The first is from the Labor Department, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, which mandates that all all companies with at least 100 employees put in place uh, mandates. And then there's one through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, which oversees the Medicare and Medicaid programs that requires hospitals and other healthcare facilities to uh, order their employees to get vaccinated. Both of those were to take effect on December 6th. Both of those are have been enjoined. The, the federal judges have said, no, you cannot enforce this um, and, and you can't go forward until we've heard the arguments in the case and, and make a decision as to whether you have legal authority to do it. So right now, both of those, the two biggest mandates, are not being enforced by the federal government under court order, and appeals of both of those rulings are in progress. Hmm. Now, if you could sit down with President Biden and with Dr. Fauci as well and talk with them about their response to Omicron, What would you say to them? How would you advise them for how, as political leaders, they should be leading our country right now? Well, I think the first thing I'd ask Dr. Fauci to do is to apologize for his I represent science remarks. Hmm. I can tell you I've tried this at home. My wife doesn't buy it, (laughs) so forget it. It, it, He's a very smart man. He is a world-class expert on infectious uh, diseases, which means he knows that there are a lot of things scientists don't know uh, about this pandemic. I think a little humility would go a long way toward boosting his credibility among tens of millions of Americans who have just tuned him out. So the president, I, I, I might ask him to stop politicizing the pandemic. I mean, he's been a politician for nearly half a century. I don't think there are very, very many people on the planet who have ever been able to say that. And so you kind of reflexively take credit for things you didn't do and shift blame for things that, that you did. And, you know, so he spent his first six months in office taking credit for the fact that people were getting vaccinated when it was really his predecessor that made all of that possible. And then when cases started to rise over the summer, he immediately started to blame uh, people that uh, 
who disagree with him politically and started accusing unvaccinated people of killing people and so on and so forth. That's fine as a politician, motivate your base, demonize your political opponents. But as president, if you're really trying to get people to change their minds about this, you have to be able to persuade them, demeaning them, threatening their jobs. It's just not a good look for a president. And I don't think it accomplishes his stated goals. Are there any countries that you think are responding really well right now to the Omicron variant or uh, who just throughout the pandemic have really handled things, uh, you would say, very excellently? And maybe we should be we should be taking some notes from. Well, everybody's got got some good features and, and, and some bad features. One that I think the UK and Germany got particularly correct was the widespread availability of affordable at-home COVID tests. Uh, Our FDA was very slow to approve them. And unlike Operation Warp Speed with vaccines, the government didn't commit to buying a whole bunch of them. So they're hard to find. They're, They're kind of expensive, really. And so people aren't just going to go out there and test themselves regularly before they get together with others and so forth because of that cost. It it really would make an awful lot of sense to make these broadly available, to educate people about their importance and their use, and for them to be able to check themselves. These are you take a do a nasal swab and in 15 minutes you find out if you tested positive or negative. They really could be a very important tool in in helping people learn their COVID status and then take appropriate steps by avoiding others and and not spreading it. Mm, yeah, I know. I think that that testing option is really really critical to be giving people the access to know uh, to know quickly right away whether or not they are positive or not and. Um, I've, I've done those at-home tests, and um, it gives you a lot of peace of mind. Um, you know, during uh, when when seasons start changing, and you think, "Wait, <laughs> is this just allergies, or do I have COVID?" It, it's great to have that test right away to be able to take. And certainly, uh, we we need more on the market, especially as we head into the holiday season. You know, uh, I think so many Americans are are fearful that we'll see another another lockdown, that we'll see things shut down again. And we have seen that President Biden has said he does not have plans to issue more lockdowns. Are you confident, Doug, that the president is going to remain true to his word and that we won't see lockdown measures put in place again? Well, I'm, I'm not as confident as, as I'd like to be. Um, and I say that for two reasons. First, he's reversed himself before. Uh, Most significantly, he maintained throughout the summer that there would be no vaccine mandate. And all of a sudden, on September 9th, uh, he reversed himself and started issuing all of these uh, mandates that people uh, either get vaccinated or lose their jobs, uh, which in those orders, I believe, are unlawful. And so far, the courts have agreed. Secondly, he he really hasn't shown... uh, sufficient regard for the legal limits on his on his power. Like President Trump, he directed the CDC uh, to put in place a moratorium on evictions. CDC 
does not have jurisdiction, national jurisdiction, over landlords and tenants. Mm -hmm. and, and President Biden, unfortunately, forced it to the point that the Supreme Court was forced to tell him not once but twice that he couldn't enforce it. Within two weeks after that second uh, and definitive Supreme Court ruling against him, he announces vaccine mandates, which again, exceed his legal authority. Now, again, I'm not saying that President Biden is going to try to put a lockdown in place. I hope he doesn't. But unfortunately, there's a the track record that he's compiled in over the course of really less than a year uh, means that we can't say definitively that he won't do it. Yeah. Well, Doug, as information continues to come out about Omicron and we continue to learn about its um, uh, really the details of this virus and the vaccine's effectiveness against it, what are uh, platforms where you're getting your information and where you would recommend to our listeners to say, you know, you should be looking at, at these sites or, or these news platforms to be getting information that you can trust? Because there's obviously so many competing voices right now. Yeah, and, and I would list first a couple that um, sort of compile uh, medically related news, which at this point is dominated by COVID-19 as everything else is. There's a, uh, there's a website called Medscape. There's MedPage Today and Kaiser Health News. And they will usually when a new study comes out, uh, new information, you'll see those reported in one or all of those outlets. The second thing I, I would encourage people to do, and I know this sounds a little daunting, if you, if you see reference to a study that found X, don't, don't take it at face value. I, I don't want to insult reporters, but when you read an article about a study, the one thing that's probably true is that the reporter hasn't read that study. <laughs> Find, find the hyperlink, read it, um, you know, even if you only read the abstract and maybe look through a couple of tables, find out what the authors of the study really said and what they did, not what uh, your favorite Twitter feed or, or uh, um, you know, news outlet says the study says. And finally, I, I'd say that there are a couple of people who've written very intelligently and, and uh, write intelligently almost every day about it. Marty McCary of uh, Johns Hopkins University has a substack, and he's very, um, very, very informative. And Vinay Prasad of the University of California in, in San Francisco. Um, those, those two, I think, both in, in addition to being trained in the field of medicine, which can't hurt, um, also, um, you know, are very, very substantive and honestly present findings uh, that are coming out daily about this, uh, this pathogen. Excellent. Doug Badger, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Doug, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow.
The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.